Welcome to the WatermarkOC.Church podcast. Thank you for listening. We are in this series called Wonderful, Wonderful, Anchored in the Finished Work of Christ. It's a, a, bu- a book study, actually, in the book of Hebrews. And um, uh, it's a, this book, Hebrews, is, is from an unknown author. There's all these great theories about who the author could have been. Uh, but it was written to an audience of probably struggling um, but, but highly educated believers, new believers, in this whole thing uh, called Christianity. You know, day one, this is the second century or, or thereabouts. And, and these new believers, they're immersed in a cultural climate that, of competing ideas about God. You know, existence and morality and the origins of it all. Not much like, not much unlike today, you know. All these competing ideas about belief and morality and how should we live and how should we walk. And they're battling these people, the Hebrews, right? It's a, it's a letter. That's what these New Testament epistles are. They're letters written to these new believers, these local churches. And they're, they're, they're battling with this age-old predicament and question of access to God. How do we relate and connect with God? which is really a matter of access. How do we access this, this being? And I want to I start with this driving question this morning. Have you ever felt so distanced from God? Have you ever been denied access to him, maybe at the hand of another? Maybe there was someone as a, as a person that, that stood as a, as a barrier or a blockade for your relationship with God. I mean, that's kind of the Christian walk, isn't it? That's kind of what faith is all about, is working through the barriers and obstacles that separate us from God. And, and these, these, these New Testament believers here in the second century were battling the same thing. Uh, so you, you may not know this, uh, maybe a few of you do, but uh, for the second half of February, I was on paternity leave. I have a picture to prove that we have some new life in the house. Yeah, I know. Isn't it so sweet? Yes, new life is a gift. It's a blessing. It is, period. It is. It's a blessing, and it's a gift, period. This is our, uh, this is our adoptive daughter and our, also our newborn daughter, uh, Finley, who came to us February 10th. And so um, I got to take this time off, which was so cool and so restful. <laughs> good, good. You guys are really quick. Uh, I don't even have to spell it out for you. You know, uh, it was some restless nights, and it's pretty intense bringing home a newborn baby, okay, because stuff just doesn't work yet, and you're trying to figure it all out. Uh, you know, uh, what I'm reminded of is that uh, newborn baby cries, newborn baby cries are, are like a stick, stick shift car. It's like a stick shift car, okay? There's speeds to the cries. You got like gear one and two, which is kind of like just a wah, 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 wah. But it sounds like a car alarm. It's almost like a rhythm to it. And you're like, well, I could tolerate this if I just trick myself into thinking it's like background music. And then, and then you get to like uh, the, the next speed, we'll call it gear three. And it's like, wah, wah, wah. What are they doing? You think they might stop because you don't hear anything for a second? No, they're going into the hyperventilating stage. And then just when you thought it couldn't get any worse, there's like, like the fifth gear, which is a full-blown, you know, something between death metal music and raising the dead. It's like, oh, you know, it's just, it's intense. Okay, not really. They're sweet darlings, and they could never, ever cross you. It was, it was hard. I'll be honest. It was a hard couple weeks at home. We had the new babies. We're changing diapers and changing diapers and changing diapers and changing diapers. We have a couple other kids in the home, so we're still chasing them around. And, uh, and then on top of that, we got sick, you guys. We got this, this stomach bug. It wasn't the full flu, but it's a stomach bug. And so everyone took turns day after day passing it around. So it was like nearly 14 days straight. We're just passing this thing around. 
And I got to tell you, I, I want to tell you what it did to me. Uh, not physically, not physically, emotionally. Emotionally what it did to me because it was hard. And, you know, sometimes what, what, what happens when life is hard is you become hard. Sometimes when life is hard, you can become hard a little bit on the inside. And it was, it was dark. There were days, stretches of days we didn't go outside, right? How, how was the last time you took that for granted? Didn't get in the car. I would have given anything just to get in the car and go for a quick drive. And it was hard. And I, and I became hard, really, truly. I, I, I want to confess and admit that to you. And you know who else has experienced that? In addition to every one of you, I think, in the room, at one point or another, what were the Jews, God's chosen people. This, these Old Testament people, this covenant people that God made a pact with, and also the early Christians, these recipients of this letter in Hebrews. And so let's churn. If you have your Bible or you have your phone or you're just going to check out the screen, awesome. Say bye-bye to the girls there, the twins as we call them. We're in chapter 3, verse 12 to start here. This is what it says again. Be careful then, dear brothers and sisters. Make sure that your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning you away from the living God. You must warn each other every day while it's still today so that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. For if we are faithful to the end, trusting God just as firmly as when we first believed, we will share in all that belongs to Christ. Remember what it says. Today, when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as Israel did when they rebelled. I have a, I have a little bit of a picture here that I want to show you. Um, go ahead, Mel. Roll that video clip. Check this out. A third of the land on our planet is desert. These great scars on the face of the earth appear to be lifeless, but surprisingly, none are. Life manages somehow to keep a precarious hold. Not all deserts are hot. 50 mile an hour winds blowing in from Siberia bring snow to the Gobi Desert in Mongolia. From a summer high of 50 degrees centigrade, the temperature in midwinter can drop to minus 40, making this one of the harshest deserts of all. So leave it to Disney to, to make a desert, even a desert, look attractive. Some of you are like, man, I'm feeling a retreat here to the Gobi Desert. No, it looks awful, right? 
40 degrees below sometimes? It's an arid desert. Why am I drawing your attention to that arid desert? Well, check this out. Look, draw your eyes over to verse 15. Verse 15. See, it should, it should, when you see something offset like that, he's doing something. He's making a reference. The author of Hebrews is making a reference to another passage. It's uh, Psalm 95. Today, when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as Israel did when they rebelled. What is he talking about? You see, it's actually kind of a big illusion. It's kind of a big deal what he's alluding to there. Psalm 95, Psalm 95 via Exodus 17. In Exodus 17, there's this story. The Jews are just in the beginning portion of their trek into the wilderness. Okay, they've been saved and rescued from bondage and slavery in Egypt. And now they're there in their first kind of leg of the journey. They're still in the first leg, but they are so disobedient. They're the most obstinate children. Talk about cranky babies. They're the most obstinate children ever. The verse says again and again, they're moaning and they're groaning towards God. They're moaning and they're groaning towards Moses. And there's this particular incidence where they become thirsty, of course. It's an arid desert, okay? It's like Mongolia. It's bad. They're thirsty. They're in the thick of it. And they cry out to Moses, why did you just let us die in Egypt? At least we had some familiarities there, you know, some common snacks and a shed that was a better house than out here in these tents, Why don't you just let us die back there? They cry out to Moses. They cry out and they test God in this moment. And and Moses, you may remember the story, he strikes the rock and all this water comes flowing forth. And and Moses calls it Masa and Meribah. Masa and Meribah. He names the place because of the event. And in verse 12 that we just read there in Hebrews, in verse 12 it says, Turn away from the living God like Israel did. Like Israel was tempted to do all the time in their arid desert journey. Turning away from the living God. Uh, the, the Greek origin of that is where we get our modern day term, apostasy. Apostasy. How's that for a hyper-religious term? All right? Apostasy, as in like a renunciation. A total back-churning to the faith, to God, to the Bible, to, 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 to Christianity. A, a renunciation, apostasy. So does that mean that they were churned over to exile and death? As they were attempting this coup towards God and to Moses? Does that mean they were turned over? This is your first primer. This is your first point right here about how accessible our God is. Just look how accessible our God is. Even when we spit in his face, even when we are an obstinate children, this is what he does. Does he allow them to return to slavery like they're requesting? Does he allow them? No. He's got a plan. He's trying to work something out in their hearts. He doesn't allow them to go back there. You know, Masa and Meribah, what it means? It means proving and strife. Proving and strife. Is that not a sum of your life and my life? Does that not sound like an apt sum of what we're called into in this life? Is that there will be strife, and yet God will be chipping away at our hearts, our faith, our character every step of the way. That's just part of the deal. It's built into how he wants to accomplish his purposes. So the heads up for us, you guys, in terms of access and what can we learn from Israel and what can we learn for the reminder for these Hebrews who are receiving this letter is that when God speaks, he's spoken, we assume that he's good for his word. He will make good on it. And we will stake our lives on those claims. Pretty simple, right? (laughs) Easier said than done. All right, so verse 13. Look over verse 13. Here's another thing I thought was fascinating. Anytime a word is in quotes, it kind of stopped me. I'm like, well, what's this hang up about today? What's this today nonsense? 
Well, what I love about that, and this is pretty self-explanatory, but as opposed to these, these future blessings or, or this eternal relationship we get to have with Jesus when we get to meet him one day, these, maybe these one-day blessings, these one-day encouragements, these one-day riches, what the author is seeking to say is, is, is literally right here and now, right here and now, what is the fruit and the blessing that God wants to produce? So let's backtrack for a second to my paternity leave at home. I didn't fully confess, but I will tell you guys, my heart was hardened. The hard circumstances led to a hard heart. And there were moments where I, where I kicked, I screamed, I cussed. I, 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 all I wanted to do was bury my head in my phone so I could get away from whatever was happening above crown. I just wanted to be distracted. It was difficult, and my heart was hard. And there was this beautiful moment when we finally made it through. You know, my wife, God bless her, God just used her and spoke through her. Um, she said, you know what, Ben, I think what maybe God means when he says blessing is different than what we think it means. You know, when children are a blessing, children are a blessing, children are a blessing. There's a couple, at least a couple different places in scripture that he says that. And her recommendation was, Ben, I think that what, what he means by that is that um, if if we let them, they will produce the fruit and the growth and the flourishing that God expects of us. You see, kids, in my context, some of you maybe don't have young children anymore, but God's using all circumstances, all people and all things to grow your faith and to grow your character. And I know that for me, that season is these kids. And they are, they are character catalysts. That's what they are. That's 100% what they are right now. And I thought, what more true statement to represent today, right here, right now, how we respond to that how we live through that is everything. That's everything. So, I, you know, this is what I figured. This is me. This is, this is what I lived through. But this hard heart, guys, sometimes in our lives, a hard heart leads to a deaf ear, and a deaf ear leads to a lame body, and a lame body would rather turn back to prison than experience the freedom of new life. How we respond to God's call is everything. And that was the Jews. That was Israel, wasn't it? When they raised up in revolt, they said, just take me back to bondage. I'd rather be in a prison cell than experience what God has for me on the other side. That's us. That's me. And how great is our God that he won't let us, even against our own self-defeating will. He won't let us. He won't let us go back to those places. What he has for us is so much richer, so much fuller, such a more complete picture of how to live life on this side of heaven. And so the challenge is, you guys, I know it's a pretty blunt slide up there, but the challenge for me and you is to find out what are those areas in our lives where we're still committed to our blindness, committed to our deafness, and committed to our dumbness, and how do we need to surrender those things to Jesus? How do we need to surrender those areas? Okay, so all of us have been in the desert. We've all been in that arid place. We've all had our dry seasons, and we've all felt that distance from God. So what does God do to close the gap? What does he do to close the distance? Remember, the whole point for this morning is access, access, access. And what's so remarkably unique and particular to our God and our system of faith is how completely accessible he is. It's totally unique. That's a stamp of Christianity. Totally unique. Let's read on. Check it out in in chapter 4. This is what it says. So then... So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. He faced all the testings we do, 
You know, testings take on a variety of faces, don't they? I think there are highly uh, personal uh, and individual testings that happen inside ourselves, the temptations and tensions inside ourselves. And I think that there's a whole um, uh, catering platter of those testings from the world. And what were the worldviews, which are the philosophical belief systems, those, those ways of thinking that impact all that we do, what were those worldviews back then that the Hebrews had to battle with? And how did those give way to the worldviews for our modern time? Well, first there were the Jews. Okay, let's talk about the Jews for a second. The Jews, man, they created some distance. They created some distance between themselves and God. And I'll give you one small example, one of my favorites. Uh, Jews thought... And God bless them in one hand. They thought that God was so holy and so set apart and they were so profane that they would not even profane the name of God by using his name. They came up with a totally different term. Hashem. Say Hashem. God bless you. God bless you. Oh, man, token old guy joke. Nailed it. Hashem. You know what Hashem means? It means the name. It means just they wouldn't even, they, wouldn't, they were not okay with saying God. They would say the name. They would put that in place of God because of how holy he was and how profane they were. This is just a small sort of illustration to say how much distance there was to cover in that old Jewish system. Okay, back then in this, this Greco-Roman time, there were the Stoics. The Stoics believed that, they, that, they're, they're, that God could have no feelings. God could have no feelings because if he had feelings, that made him too much like us. And if we could be equal in terms of what we feel, then really that's no God at all because he's going to be too weak. How about the Epicureans? These folks called the Epicureans. The Epicureans, boy, they took God down a pedestal. They said that because gods were so far removed in their heavenly bliss, that they were literally unaware of anything that happened down below. They were so far removed that it was a distant, a totally detached God. These were the worldviews of that time. How did they give way to our worldviews today? Well, I would argue that we had the Stoics and the Epicureans. They gave way to the following. They gave way to, you know, universalism. That all roads lead to heaven. That that all manners of faith and all belief systems must be true. And they all end up the same place. They all basically say the same thing. And because everything is true, um, this is what I've tried to encourage us before, nothing can be true. That whole argument stems on that one thing, that all of them are true. If all of them are true, that waters down everything and nothing can be true. It's a very, very tough world view to, to wrap your head around, and yet it's prevailing. It's a, it's, a, it's a staple for those who are agnostic, atheist, the so-called nuns, meaning none, they believe nothing. They would rather not check agnostic or atheist, and they'd definitely rather not check any Christian denomination, and they just check none when they're surveyed and asked questions about what they believe. That's a hugely prevailing, a growing swath, especially if young people believe that way. And then how about this distant or detached God? Well, I would turn to, to all the other major and minor religions. These man-made barriers that we create to separate access from God. Islam, Buddhism, Scientology, some of our, the, the Mormons, even some of our modern-day Jews and Catholics. There's a full ceremony. There's a whole procedure. There's a secret handshake to get in the club and to gain entry. Guys, I'm here to tell you there can be no secret handshake. In this system of faith, that is not our God. He is accessible and ultimately relatable. Absolutely. Look at, look at what one author says, way, way advanced beyond my years. This is what he says. It's, it's almost impossible. It's almost impossible for us to realize the revolution that Christianity brought about in men's relationships to God. For century after century, they had been confronted with the idea of the untouchable God. And now they discovered one who had gone through all that man must go through. 
He brought God to men, and he can bring men to God. That is a profound shift in history, what these Hebrews were facing and what we're now facing 2,000 years later. A shift in history, a tectonic shift. Now, I want to tell you this morning, I was talking to a room of pretty much, uh, most of us, you know, believers and Christians. The secular worldview, it's a pretty easy target. Like I said, it doesn't stand on a lot when you start asking hard questions about morality, about existence, how did everything begin, about where do we go after. It doesn't have a lot to stand on. So that's an easy target. Even, even some of these world religions, they're an easy target because of all those hoops and all the religiosity and all the performance. People can see through that pretty quickly. And, and so we need to make sure, you guys, that in our individual practice of faith and our corporate practice of faith, that we are not the roadblocks and barriers to people coming to have an authentic walk of Jesus and experience his love. That's, I think, the gut check for me and for you. I can speak for myself and my household. I need to make sure that my hard heart is not a roadblock for those kids to know a gracious and forgiving and merciful father. We need to make sure that that's not us. You see, the legacy of religion, the legacy like this author points to, for years, decades, and millennia, the legacy of religion has been the secret handshake and the special entry system. With us and our generation of faith, it can be no more. It cannot be that way. That's my encouragement to us as we talk about access for God. So then what's the model, Ben? What's the model to ensure that just as we have been given access to God, me and you, most of us in the room, were crossed this line of faith? We have been given that access as a perfect and unmerited gift. How do we make sure that we do our best to allow that access for those where we live, where we work, and where we play? Let's look. Jesus gives us a wonderful model. The author of Hebrews gives us a wonderful model. Look at verse 15. Now as we turn to verse 15, this is what it says. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. One insanely gifted author and pastor and speaker, he puts it this way. He says that Jesus was and is and always will be committed to the ministry of tears and truth. I'm going to say it again. If you're taking notes, you want to remember anything from this morning, he was and always will be committed to the ministry of tears and truth. What do I mean by that? Well, well let's skip ahead. One more reference in Hebrews. Let's go to chapter 5. Okay, chapter, chapter 5, verse 5. This is what it says. That is why Christ did not honor himself by assuming he could become high priest. No, he was chosen by God, who said to him, You are my son, today I have become your father. In another passage, God said to him, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. What the heck is Melchizedek? Okay, you could do volumes of study on it. I'm just going to scratch the surface and tell you this. Melchizedek represents a kingly line. It's a kingly line. It's a heritage of kings. The author of Hebrews is saying, Jesus, he was both priest and king. And I'll give you another piece of insight. If you search the whole Bible over, you will not find a priest king anywhere else but in Jesus. Totally and completely individual and unique to Jesus. You will not find another figure that was both priest and king. Why is that such an awkward and crazy conundrum? Well, because if you look at the function and office of a priest and a king, you see there are some wild points where they diverge. On the one hand, you have the priest who is the supporter, the sympathizer, the gentle dealer. Think about Bucky Dennis, okay? This, this shepherding, merciful, amazing man of God, compassionate man of God, the lead pastor of this church, if you're newer to the church. 
and my boss. Okay? And then you have the king, on the other hand, was this person of truth, the law enforcer, the judge. On the one hand, holiness and truth. On the other hand, love and acceptance. Both character traits are inherent to the person of Jesus. That's how he dealt, and that's how you and I must deal. That's how he dealt, and that's how you and I must deal. As we seek to emulate Christ, we must represent both the ministry of tears, which is that compassion, that empathy, that sympathy, and the ministry of truth, which is lovingly and graciously and mercifully speaking into those areas of character growth to help people get through their arid seasons, their desert wilderness seasons. What else can we say about the model? If we're ensuring, we're doing our best to not be about blockades and barriers, we're doing our best to be about access, and we want to represent that to the world, how else is, this, how else is the, the, the ministry of Jesus, his truth and tears, I'm just going to take this with two more illustrations, how else is the ministry of tears and truth, how else is it embodied in the life of Jesus? Consider this. Consider Jesus as the master sympathizer. You know, the, the, the Latin for sympathizer means literally to suffer with. Sympathize, suffer with. No one did that as greatly as Jesus did. Just look at his ministry of miracles and healing. Just look at the examples. Look at the, 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 the massive library of examples. Okay, the bleeding woman, the blind man, the blind men, the lepers, the paralytic who's let down through the roof, the servant's ear who's chopped off in the garden, and of course, Lazarus. This dear friend of Jesus, the shortest scripture passage in all the Bible is what? Jesus wept. Is that someone who had to go to the depths of human emotion and pain to experience it fully and completely? That he cried? The same author that I alluded to before, he says that, that, that he allows himself to be drained by us. Just get that for a second. Just hear that for a second. Wherever you're coming from this morning, Whatever your situation is, you're needing encouragement, you're feeling drained, you're feeling hurt, you're feeling broken, you're feeling in the wilderness, or you're feeling pumped up, great. A day from now, a time will come where you're feeling drained all over again in the arid desert. He allows himself to be drained by us. Here's the catch. Here's the thing that I found that I thought was so amazing. There's another reference. Remember the story of the centurion's daughter. Okay, who's the centurion? He's this this soldier, this high-ranking Roman soldier who showed favor and kindness to the Jews. He, he, he helped them with their synagogue. He, he, was, he let them have access to their, their place of worship. And he was benevolent towards them. And, and he sends his servant to go to Jesus. Jesus, the centurion's daughter, is sick, and we need you to come and work a miracle. We need you to come and do that. And Jesus is on his way. And you may remember from the story, um, the centurion comes out and meets him. He says, you know, no need. No need to go any further. Just pause right there and say the word because I know just like in my work, all I have to do is say the word and my soldiers will take their marching orders and they will see that it is done. I believe the same thing is true for you. And Jesus replies, nowhere, nowhere in all of Israel have I seen a faith like this. And it's done. And the little girl is healed. So it begs the question, why didn't Jesus just run around snapping his fingers all over the place? This is the God of heaven and earth. This is the man who... who, who, who displayed authority over nature, displayed authority over the spiritual realm, displayed authority over physical bodies. There was not a rock unchurned that Jesus didn't own. Churned the lo- multiplied the loaves and the fish, he could have just done it with a snap. But what proportion of times did he use the snap model and what proportion of the time did he come and touch the bleeding woman? I'm pausing this ministry missionary track and I want to look her in the eyes so I can see her totally and have an interaction. I'm going to pick the lopped off ear off the ground and put my hand on this enemy of mine 
and put it back on his face. As I look him in the eyes, he allows himself to be drained by us. He enters in. He is the ultimate sympathizer. He closes the gap and makes sure there is access at all times. He chose to be proximate to our pain. He chose it to be that way. That's how Jesus deals. That's how you and I must deal as we're after this question of access. You know, I got a pretty wonderful opportunity this last week um, to experience this myself. You see, uh, there was an incident. I was taking something out to our dump. We have this industrial dumpster over here in the corner. Some of you maybe have even seen it. And um, uh, I, had, uh, I went over there, and uh, I saw that it was overflowing, okay? Overflowing is a bit of an understatement. I was working on this message, and I thought to myself, I remembered, I took a picture. So allow me to demonstrate for you. Why did I take a picture? So I could see it would be someone else's job, of course, like to check in with someone else so they could handle that. I'll tell you honestly, I'm not exaggerating. Um, that's, that's at best a half of the mess because there is some square footage that goes beyond the dumpster can. And that is where someone just, you know, we've gone layer to layer of junk and garbage and trash. And I'm back there. I brought gloves. I prepared. I set aside some time in the morning. I knew what my job was going to be. And I'm going through the layers of cardboard boxes and magazines and, and old composted food. And I'm ripping these plastic tarps. And, you know, you rip something up and unknown mystery fluid just, just kind of sprays on you a little bit, you know. Gets on your arms and on your face a little bit, right? Okay, it was probably just coffee, so don't freak out. It was probably just old coffee. How many of you guys ever felt like you were just shoveling stuff? You ever have a season? You ever have a season where you felt like you were just shoveling stuff? You were just shoveling junk. You had a moment or a whole season where you were just in the thick of it. You were knee deep in it. You know, I I mean it when I say it. I was glad that I got the opportunity to do that. Because it, it reminded me of the fact that this is the work that Jesus does. I don't mean that metaphorically. The passage says that he entered into every human experience. He was able to experience those things, and yet he did not give in to sin, contextually. I don't just mean metaphorically. Yeah, Jesus is my homeboy. Jesus is there on my shoulder. I mean, he is there and present and in it with you when you're in the muck and the mire and the filth of the wilderness experience. He is with you. He is with us. That is what access means to Jesus. That's what it means to be in the ministry of truth and tears, to have a commitment to that ministry. That's what it looks like. Okay, so we've all been in the desert. We've been alone. We've been broken. And yet our access to God, even in those moments, has never been broken. It's never been broken. But because of this access that we've been given, I think we have this wonderful mandate as it produces character and faith in us to dole out that encouragement, to dole out that access to one another. And here's how I want to finish this morning. In verse, in verse 13, this is such a cool word. I'm so excited about this. In verse 13, it said that, that you must warn each other every day, while it's still today, so that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. That you must warn one another. I can't tell you how excited I am about this part, okay? I'm pretty pumped up. The, the Greek word for warn each other, it gets to an English word called counselor, wonderful counselor. Does that sound familiar? Jesus is that perfect, wonderful counselor. And the literal translation, though, of that, of that must warn each other is parakaleo. Parakaleo. You know what parakaleo, when you we just put that down the, to the raw words, what it means? It means to come alongside and yell. It means to just run up alongside and start yelling. Guys, I can't tell you how much I'm in love with that idea because that's me. For better or for worse, that's why God put me on this planet. 
You know, Bucky, Bucky has this uh, cute little story he likes to tell. A little cute, too cute, if you ask me. He's got this story he likes to tell about his dachshunds. All right, dachshunds are, are uh, if you're not familiar with the, the standard parlance, they're, they're like wiener dogs. These little black, short-haired wiener dogs. Okay, and one of them passed away years ago, and, and then the other one was becoming older and kind of a little bit slower or a little bit more de- decrepit, and that's when they decided to buy a puppy. So they got dachshund number two in there alongside the other one, and the way Bucky tells the story is it just brought new life. This, this older dachshund just came alive again, got their second wind, had this, this, this vitality previously unseen in the last few months. Bucky tells that story about him, himself and about me. And, and it's true. I just love, I can't help it. I just want to come along someone. I just yip, 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 yip. I just come alongside him. And I'm just hollering. I can't help it. I can't help it. Not all of us, though, are like me. I get that. I appreciate that. Thank God that my wife is not me. But I will tell you this. Just like you and I must be committed to the ministry of truth and tears, we must be committed to the ministry of encouraging one another through this walk through the wilderness. If the church can be nothing else, we must be a community of encouragers. And that will pave such a wide, beautiful road of access once we learn to encourage one another, not just Sunday morning, but in our small groups, in our studies, in our events, and then where we live, where we work, and where we play. One more quick example. It was my first Sunday. My first Sunday, a year ago May at Watermark, when I came back on staff at Watermark, a year ago May. That same Sunday, I had run the OC Marathon, the full marathon that morning. I came up here, an old dusty, greasy, sticky piece of nastiness. I'll never forget it. And it was, it was a gnarly emotional battle to finish that race. And I wrote a little piece about it. And one of the things that I said about it was that um, in a marathon, as in life, it helps to have someone just come alongside you. In those moments, I can't tell you how much, how badly I needed to see a familiar face on the curb, on the sidewalk, on the road, right there at mile 20. Oh, my God, how I needed to see just this familiar face just yelling crazy. Just, it could have been a stranger if they knew my name and I could hear them say my name. I would have been just got at least two more miles. And then again at mile 23, if just one more familiar face or even a stranger could just come alongside me in that moment, I could possibly get through this race without walking. And isn't that a fitting analogy for where you're at and where I'm at in life sometimes, this life, this race that we're in, and that we can get each other through it if we come alongside and we offer that encouragement. And I'll tell you one more word about encouragement before the band goes into this time of communion, and we take the the, the wine and and the cup and, and the bread, and we take that on. But I'll tell you a little bit about what encouragement can look like. There's some of us in the room that are wired as feelers or natural feelers. You have that sympathetic, compassionate uh, angle that you can take. God just made you that way. That's how my wife is built. Praise God for that. And there's some of us in the room that are wired as fixers. We can't help but overflow with the advice and the truth telling that someone needs to hear in that moment. I'll tell you, you've been put on this earth, whichever one you are, you've been put on this earth to play that song. And that is your lane for encouragement, to be a feeler sometimes and to be a fixer sometimes. And remember that it was our great high priest, our priest king, who was equally both, though. Who was equally both. And yes, even though in my brokenness I have a bent towards the fixer, I'll tell you, sometimes my encouragement that I feel led to give is it comes at the cost of even maybe hurting someone. It's a piece of input that they don't want to hear. It's a piece of input that might leave a tiny bit of a sting. But I was in a meeting last week, and I'll just quote this person. They were talking about their prayer ministry, and they said, well, you're going to go there? You're going to go to that place? 
right now? You're praying over this person, and you're going to actually say what we're all feeling and we're all thinking, but you're going to say it out loud. You're going you're to press your finger on that spot. You're going to go there? My encouragement, because all I can do is sing that song that I've been built to play and stay in my lane that I've been built to stay in, is that as you feel those moments, as God is pressing in, he wants you to lean in and put your finger on that place and go there. Go to that place that God's calling you to. That could be the most monumental access place for that person. And in that way, we could emulate the king priest, the priestly king, as we seek to encourage people and we go to that place. So that's my encouragement, you guys. As as we enter into this time of communion, um, pray that God would renew you and restore you. He would be the great encouragement to you to go forth in this week and to share with people in the ministry of tears. Be broken. Enter into it. And to also, in those moments when it's appropriate and you can do it in grace and love, to offer truth. Because you know that could be the thing that lifts them out of that arid desert place. Pray and ask that God would show you those opportunities this week. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much, Father, for worship. Thank you for this worship service. Thank you, God, that you can use music. You can use your word to show us our next steps in this ministry of tears and truth and encouragement, Father. That as we commit to go down those roads, you would blast the streets wide open and access. That people would come to know you and come to experience you. No barrier, no blockade, Father. I bind the enemy, Lord. The enemy that would try and still kill and destroy, that would try and prop up blockades and try and block up stumbling blocks, Jesus. That you would not let them prevail in our relationships. Every person in this room, Lord, let them be commissioned and called to be those encouragers and to share in the ministry of tears with people. Thank you, Jesus. Your son's name I pray. Amen. To find out more about us, go online to watermarkoc.church. 